Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. So wrote John Donne in 1624. Almost 400 years later, the value we place on relationships is more tangible than ever. In 2016, the British public voted the smartphone as the 21st century's most important invention. From Facebook and WhatsApp to Tinder and Twitter, the modern world reflects our desire for friendships, relationships and professional networks. But does the modern world enhance or inhibit our ability to build and maintain meaningful relationships? Is society making us more facile and selfish? In this episode, James Ratti asks, how does the modern world affect relationships? Looking at how the digital realm is extending our relationships beyond death, whether drugs can improve our romantic relationships, and how we can all learn to become more empathetic. Oh my God, I cannot keep having the same fight over and over again, Ross. No, you're, you're, you're making this too hard. Oh, I'm, I'm making this too hard. Okay, what do you want me to do? I don't know, I don't know, look. Oh, maybe we should just take a break. I can't believe I even thought of getting back together with you. We are so over. Fine by me! Rachel, I, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry I was out of my mind. I thought I'd lost you. I didn't know what to do. Come on, come on. How insane must I have been to do something like Ross this? Ross and I, Rachel, I the perennial together-not-together together together couple of the 90s American sitcom Friends. After all we've been through, I can't believe this is how you want to leave Their tempestuous relationship was a permanent fixture of the show's 10-year run. Multiple times they got together, argued, broke up, before coming together again, only to repeat the cycle. This can't be it. Despite the contrivances of the plot, their story is not an entirely unrealistic one. Romantic relationships can be hard, and despite the best of intentions, often end in heartbreak. But what if there was a means by which such scenarios could be avoided? In other words, could people like Ross and Rachel save themselves years of needless stress? Brian D. Earp of the University of Oxford thinks there could be. Along with Julian Savulescu, Brian thinks there may be a way of overcoming many of the emotional pitfalls of relationships. Together, they have written the forthcoming book Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. The book argues that drugs have the potential to improve our romantic relationships, helping couples overcome anything from PTSD to petty squabbling. I spoke to Brian over Skype and asked him about the use of MDMA, which is in the street drug ecstasy, and how it could be used as part of a couple's therapy session. Very often when you're using talk therapy, people tend to talk around certain issues. When there's a really deep trauma or something really large grumbling under the surface, uh, people often are avoidant about it and they don't feel safe bringing it up necessarily, although it's something that they might ultimately really need to bring to the surface to get a real appraisal of what's going on in their relationship. And part of what MDMA does subjectively is it, it temporarily inhibits maladaptive fear responses. So this is one reason why it's being trialed now for PTSD. Uh, there's a, a story I mentioned in the book of this soldier who, who came back from uh, Iraq and every time on the 4th of July, the, the fireworks go off, he, he enters into this state of panic and he just feels like he's back in, in, uh, in, in Baghdad again. And 
So although his, his feeling of fear is very real to him, it's not the appropriate response to the situation. And by having therapy with MDMA, he was able to finally talk about his experiences in the war. Now, relationships aren't, for the most part, as bad as being in a war, but sometimes they can be traumatic and they can be uh, the sort of thing where people find that um, they, they slip into a routine where they just aren't able to find their, their partner's perspective or even to really uh, have an honest relationship with their own emotions. And so, again, talk therapy is a good place to start. And for some people, it will work. But for others, having this adjunctive substance that will help uh, put them into a state of mind whereby they're more receptive to the sorts of lessons they would anyway be trying to achieve in the counseling session could, for the right couples, be helpful. Many people would say that drugs create a kind of unreality and that anything experienced on a drug is, is essentially inauthentic and you can't really learn anything from it. And the second part of that is, do you have to be taking MDMA, for example, on an ongoing basis to kind of continue to benefit from its effects? Now, I think people think of MDMA as sort of this, this chemical glue or something that, that makes people fall in love with each other. And it's really not that simple. Um, there are examples that we talk about in the book of people who, uh, on an experience that was partially caused by their taking MDMA, they, they came to realize that uh, the relationship they were in wasn't really the best relationship for them. They experienced this feeling of love, as it were, for themselves. And they said, you know, I don't feel appropriately loved or appreciated in this relationship, and I've just been ignoring that. I haven't been facing that. And uh, that's something that, again, in these anecdotal cases, uh, some people have found that with drug-assisted psychotherapy, they've been able to reach genuine realizations about the circumstances they're in. And then when the effects of the drug wear off, they, they can reflect on what they experienced. It's not that it's this chemical puppeteer that just drags them into some conclusion that they wouldn't independently endorse. You know, they're still there in the experience and then the effects of the drug wear off and they can reflect on what happened and say, you know, was there a valid lesson there? Okay, on the matter of whether you have to take MDMA over, over long periods of time, no. Uh, the evidence that exists so far suggests that a very small number of treatments can have very big and long-lasting effects. Again, because it's not that the drug is this ongoing puppeteer that's, that's uh, pulling at your, your chemical system over time. The, the, the effects of the drug last for, you know, four hours or so, depending on, on the dose. And then you learn something during that experience. And what you've learned is what you carry with you into the, the subsequent, subsequent stretch of your life without having to keep re-upping the dose. In fact, for, for people who have um, taken MDMA in these clinical trials for PTSD and, and other conditions, they find that uh, it's, it's a rather intense experience. You wouldn't want to do it all the time. Uh, you, you think, okay, wow, I had, a, I had a big lesson today, and that was pretty intense, and uh, I'm going to now try to implement those lessons and integrate them into my life rather than constantly be turning to this drug for assistance to get through the day-to-day -day life. That's not, uh, generally speaking, the way it works or the, the accounts that people have been giving of their experiences in the literature so far. Some people would say that, that love is something very personal, subjective, uncontrollable, and we shouldn't be meddling with it. So my favorite author in this area is a, is a classic author, Eric Fromm, who wrote a book called The Art of Loving, I think back in the 1950s. And his argument is that when we think of love as this thing that just happens to us, like magical fairy dust that falls on our heads when we meet the right person, we actually have a very immature vision of love, which, which is, is, is based on something that just occurs to us and over which we have no, we have no control. And so when we, we fall out of love with our partner, when we don't feel the way that we felt initially when we were swept off our feet, 
we think, well, I guess the relationship's over. There's no, there's no reason to continue loving this person. But he says, if you, if you promise to be with someone, if you're committed to someone and you want to have love be a part of that relationship, you have to understand a little bit about how love works. You have to think of love as, as, as an art, as he says, or as a, a kind of faculty that you can exercise and develop and strengthen. And so if you're able to think, you know, what is the role that love can play in my life? You're not going to have complete control over it, but you can certainly take steps to, to help love flourish in a relationship that you value. Or if you're in a relationship that's harmful or abusive or that ought to end, there are also steps you can take to try to diminish your feelings of love for your partner. And people do this all the time when they get over an ex, you know, there are things you can do like stop looking at all their pictures on Facebook or stop hanging out with them. There are things we do all the time to try to shape our feelings in such a way that they become a little bit more consistent with our, with our, our higher order goals and values. And, and, and rightly so. We live in a society where there are big pharmaceutical giants with an agenda. There are also certain other kind of social dynamics and forces, things like gay conversion therapy, for example, or even forced marriages. Should we not be just letting things take their inverted uh, commas natural course? Are there forces in society that might want to capitalize on, in particular, chemical interventions into love? Sure. Um, big pharma will capitalize on any possible chemical intervention into anything. And you can imagine the invention of relationship diseases like commitment phobia or uh, some other kind of love-based disorder that they want to suggest you have so they can now sell you their, their treatment for it. But there are always dangers and always risks to introducing these kinds of technologies. And so, for example, with conversion therapy, as you mentioned, you know, there are conservative religious groups that are already using existing medications for something like this purpose, where they'll uh, administer antidepressant medication, SSRIs, that have a, a side effect of diminished libido to uh, young religious youths that um, are experiencing same-sex attraction, for example, to, to essentially try to kill their libido. Um, that's wrong to do. And that's already being done with existing uh, medications. So the thing to do there is to figure out what are the appropriate policies and laws that would need to be put in place to make sure that especially vulnerable minorities or, or children would be protected from any sort of coercive application of these drugs? But we shouldn't just think that the mere existence of a drug entails certain adverse social consequences because we have tools at our disposal that we can use to try to uh, bend the use of any new technology more toward the beneficial end than toward the bad end. You're not just thinking about the, the, the more extreme cases. You mentioned PTSD as an example, but you're also saying the uh, a chemical approach to relationships um, has a role to play in more everyday relationship issues, such as things like jealousy. There was an interesting case study I came across in the literature of this man who went to his psychiatrist because he was experiencing extreme jealousy. Basically, his, his wife said, uh, if, if you don't do something about this pathological jealousy you're experiencing, I'll get a divorce. And he said, well, I don't want that to happen. So he went to the, to the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist has a problem here. How do, you, how do you treat jealousy? That's not sort of a recognized condition. It's not in the DSM. Um, but the, the psychiatrist realized that jealousy has a lot of overlap with, with obsessive compulsive disorder, where you have these obsessive, repetitive thoughts. You, you keep at something despite clear evidence that it's not helping. You, can't, you have these intrusive pictures coming into your mind and so forth. And so, so the psychiatrist thought, well, maybe I should treat this person as if he had OCD. And so he prescribed uh, a, a sort of cognitive therapy with a, a common drug that's used to treat OCD, which is, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's actually a similar drug that's used for depression. And uh, the combination of these things, in this case, assuaged the man's jealousy and allowed him to rebuild his relationship with his wife. 
again, we wouldn't want to think of jealousy as necessarily a, a mental disorder or a sort of a medical problem necessarily. Nevertheless, intervening in it with medical technologies in certain extreme cases or cases where at least it's impairing the relationship um, might help some people have a, a, a happier relationship. There's, I forget the, the names of the, the examples that you cite in the book, but there's also a, a couple that are having a kind of a, a slow relationship breakdown. Nothing dramatic is happening, but uh, they notice they, they're arguing more, they feel less connected to each other. And you, you say there's also potential for chemical solutions to, to rebuilding that relationship. Right. So there's some research suggesting that um, a, a large proportion of divorces come from cases where the couples aren't at each other's throats necessarily. They're not fighting. It's not an abusive relationship. They've just kind of fallen out of love. They still value the relationship in certain regards. Um, they've built a life together. They have shared finances. Maybe they have kids together. They, they, they have similar, similar interests, but they just sort of have this gray unhappiness that's become a stable feature of their life. So these are, these are called stable, unhappy marriages. Now, what do you do in this case? Some people would say, well, just, I don't know, get a divorce, you know, try to meet someone new and, and uh, uh, start your life over with someone else. And for some people, that might be, be the right decision. But there might be other cases where people would say, you know, we've built something together here and there's reason to value it. And, you know, maybe all things considered, it would be better for our kids if, if they didn't have this big disruption in their life of their parents moving to different houses and so forth. So in this case, maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. And so if we've tried everything else, if we've tried the sexy lingerie and the trips and all the cliched kind of things that people recommend in, in magazines, you know, why, why not also try a relationship counseling session where rather than just talking about what's going on, you intervene directly into the, the kind of underlying neurochemistry that may well need a kind of uh, a kickstart. And you might find that for some people, they would be able to uh, uh, bring a sense of love and, and affection back into the relationship uh, not solely because of the effects of, of a drug, but because of the drug in combination with really working on the relationship in a conventional way. So we've talked quite a lot about love drugs, but one of the things I found most compelling in the book is this idea of anti-love drugs and how they can potentially support people in abusive relationships, relationships they find very, very difficult to leave. So in some cases, you have a circumstance where somebody knows they ought to leave a relationship. They have this higher order rational awareness that they're in an objectively bad situation that they should leave. But what they find is that they have this, this lower level emotional gut addictive attachment to their partner. And sometimes this is a coping mechanism in, in situations of abuse or intimate partner violence where uh, the person as a coping mechanism gets even more attached to the person who's abusing them as some way to kind of make sense of, of the mistreatment. Now, if you're going to throw drugs at this situation, you might think, well, wait a minute, what exactly is the problem here and what's the best way to intervene? If somebody's abusing someone, they are doing something wrong and they have the obligation to stop. So there may be a legal intervention whereby that person should be arrested for abuse. There are also psychosocial support mechanisms that, that should be put in place. You know, the, the person who's experiencing uh, feelings of addictive attachment to an abusive partner the, the thought is we shouldn't just drug that person into unfeeling, but rather we should provide that person with, with psychosocial support. At the same time, there may be some extreme cases where a person finds that even though they have access to psychosocial support and even though legal measures have been tried, they just cannot get over their feeling of visceral attachment to someone that they know is abusing them. And in that case, if a person were truly voluntarily wanting to take a drug to help them diminish their feelings of attachment to someone that it is objectively bad for them to be attached to, then in that kind of situation, it seems like there might be a moral case that that person should have access to the drug. 
Underlying the book is a call to fundamentally reconsider how we think about drugs, away from an individual to a more relational perspective. But we don't systematically study the relational effects of drugs we take for individual clinical symptoms. So imagine you're taking antidepressant medication, SSRI. It's interacting with the neurochemistry that underlies romantic attachment. It certainly can affect libido in some people. That's a straightforward way in which uh, these drugs might affect relationships. But essentially, we don't systematically study these kinds of effects. And so one aim of the book is a call to research. It says, if we're going to be taking these, these powerful drugs for other purposes, rather than only focusing on how they may alleviate individual symptoms of, for example, depression, or another class of drugs would be hormonal birth control. That's another thing that likely affects relationships neurochemically. Um, we, should, we should focus on the interpersonal effects. Brian also argues that these love drugs shouldn't be reserved for the most extreme cases, but could be used to improve all types of relationships. Here are people who are just dealing with normal life stuff, difficult relationship issues or difficult personal issues that don't need to rise to the level of some kind of clinical diagnosis. And we think under the right conditions, using some of these drugs could put them into a state of mind whereby they're able to get from a place that's not very good to a place that's better. And we don't have to think of this in terms of medical categories. We can just think of it in terms of enhancement or improvement, simply helping a person's life go better, all things considered, uh, without first pathologizing their, as it were, ordinary life circumstances. Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships is out later this year. This is an advert for the company Safe Beyond. We see a father on a beach recording a series of messages into his tablet. Hey, princess. Cut to several years later and a bride on the morning of her wedding. She receives a phone notification. I know you've probably been dreaming about this day for pretty much your entire life, and if you want to know the truth, I have too. We then see a series of messages arriving for the man's wife and his son. Elizabeth, my love, I'm so proud of you. Safe Beyond is one of a host of new online companies that offers users the opportunity to send messages to people after they have died. The idea of using communication technologies to extend our relationships beyond the grave is the subject of Paula Keel's PhD at the LSE. She began by telling me what kind of services are currently on offer. The websites that I'm looking at offer three kinds of services. The first is more of an administrative type, which are websites that um, enable you to plan um, what you want to be done with your digital assets. So you have online accounts, you have your Facebook, you have your email, or other online assets like your um, iTunes collection or your Amazon books. So they enable you to plan what you want to be done with all these digital assets. Uh, the second type of website are websites, I call it social goodbye, so it's about closure. So these are websites that would talk mostly about saying goodbye, leaving a final message, leaving your final legacy, this is how I want you to remember me, or this is how I want you to live from now on. These websites would usually enable users to create messages, either text messages or video messages, and they would usually limit um, the time of sending the message to up to a year after a person's death. And then the third kind of websites are websites that are more about long-term presence after your death in the life of, of your loved ones. And then they do it either through planning and creating messages to be sent at almost any point in the future. So you could plan to send messages to your children or to your friends up to 80 years after your death. So you can also plan on 
making sure that you don't know when your child will finish university but or your grandchild will finish university but you can create a message for that day and make sure that when the day comes that that child receives the message and the other kind of long-term presence websites are those that use um, artificial intelligence and machine learning where they uh, when you, where you can create a chatbot you can create some f digital f form of you and you train it and it learns what kind of answers you might give to what kind of questions um, and then you just digitally interact with loved ones after your death. Paula thinks that these websites reflect a wider shift in the way we relate to the dead. The thing that is all that we do know that is already happening is that the dead are being there. Tony Walter wrote a paper. He says that there is a paradigmatic change in how in the place of the dead in, in Western society and from a, from a society that denies death and where death is a taboo and where the dead are completely excluded and isolated, we've, we're becoming a society in which the dead are pervasive. And one of the reasons is the use of digital media. So even though you don't have specific messages you know, targeted to you on your birthday, it's become very common to go on your Facebook and come across a profile of, of a friend of yours who died or receive reminders from Facebook that it's this and this birthday today and this and this actually died three years ago. So in that sense people are already having that experience of, of the pervasiveness of the presence of the dead. So the dominant approach today is one of, of continuing bonds, one of on the one hand you learn to let go, you learn to accept the fact that the person is no longer in your life and on the other hand you learn how to give that person a new role in your life or a new space. Would it be possible to show me a couple of examples? Yes. Legacy armor for instance. Secure cloud-based storage for now and your digital safety deposit box for later. So this is one example. And as I, as I told you, you see here, there's more you know, computer safety. Um, so it's kind of in the, the same archetype as someone, a service offering a will, basically. It's all about dealing with your uh, assets mm -hmm. and offering securities and stability. It's quite, it looks quite conservative in its style. Right. And what about something that's a bit more um, yeah, no, ambitious? So we have um, Safe Beyond. They're the ones that let you send messages up to 80 years after your death. You see, they, a lot of them use the image of seas, skies, the sea, the water. Um, I'm guessing also the clouds and as a metaphor for heaven. I think the sea is quite a good one in that you're at the beach. It's very like familial and lovely. But then yeah. there's like this abyss, this unknown danger yeah. that's right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they have different triggers, right? So you have, you can either use a date message, which you choose a specific date to send your message. It can be event-based. Location messages uses your uh, location on your phone. And then when you reach a place, that's when like, and you can, you can send a message and want it to be sent the first time this person goes to, to see um, Buckingham Palace. The first time he's there, that's when you want them to get a message from you. I'm not sure if I'd want that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is very pervasive, isn't it? It is very... Um, that, that's one of, of the challenges and, one of the, and, things, and something that keeps coming up, that it, that it has the potential of being very intrusive and very pervasive to your everyday. There's a tendency to view these new technologies as redefining how we relate to death. However, Paula thinks communication technologies have a long history of blurring the lines between life and death, presence and absence. Communication enables you to be 
present while absent and this is and this has been true for any technology for for communication sense writing once you once you're able to transmit your ideas your thoughts your feelings while you're not there you can be present while absent and with each technology for communication that emerges our understanding of being present and being absent also change so imagine the, the first photograph before the photograph it was well you you could you could argue that maybe painting enabled it but maybe it wasn't as available but with photograph it was the first time that your actual likeness could have been present separately completely from you um, and then with a the phone so your voice could be present co-present instantly present in two different parts of the world uh, so so with with the progress of communication we are, we are learning to accept more a more complicated relationship between presence and absence we really use online communication to be almost permanently present even if we're not present even if though right now I'm not on my Facebook I'm not on my email I am present because people because people still can interact with me they can send me messages they know that I'm available they know that they can find me if you were invited to be a board member on one of these mm. large kind of startup companies one of the offer yeah. the more ambitious you know bot type things or letter right. writing location services yeah. what would you advise them to consider? Um, do these, what happens if someone uses these services like the leave, leaving goodbye messages and all that as part of a suicide? And there, wa there was one case, one designer who told me that one of their users used, um, had committed suicide and left and used their website to leave horrible messages to all her family. Um, blaming them for her suffering and and then they they got very very they co they contacted the website and being very angry and accusing them of her suicide and um, and then he said and I, and I said well, well what did you do about it or what are you going to do in the future to prevent this from happening or and he said well it's not what the website is for it's not what I want people to do with it but if that's what they choose to do that's what they choose I'm not going I'm not going to stop it. What has studying this phenomenon taught you about relationships and how they're practiced in the modern age? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> tough one. <laughs> it is a tough one. Because there is a lot of fear from technology. And there is a lot you hear all the time about this. We're forgetting how to be present. We're forgetting how to be friends. Friendships don't mean anything. We're always on our phones. We're always on our Facebook and But I think that That this research is, is definitely has definitely showed that Relationships are still there and the human connection is still there. What got you interested in this research to begin with and has Doing the research affected whether you think you may sign up for one of these services or not? All, all of these websites, um, as I said before, they, they, they resonate with this fantasy of immortality. And I think that, that deep, I think that really draws me this, this idea, this, this fantasy of living forever, having your idea, where is it coming from? Um, how does it change over the years? Um, and also deep, deep inside, maybe, can, can I also do it? <laughs> you can find out more about Paula's research at onlineafterdeath at weebly.com.
Brett Heisman's research investigates how society can create better environments for autistic people. During his recently completed PhD at LSE, Brett looked at communication in interpersonal relationships and developed new insights into the codes and conventions that underpin communication in general and the means by which all relationships can thrive and falter. So my research has looked at autism and in particular the question of how non-autistic people understand autistic perspectives. So autism is understood as a lifelong developmental difficulty in social interaction. Um, but a constituent part of the difficulty that many autistic people face is the fact that society doesn't really understand what autism is and often organisations and people are quite poorly placed to support the complex needs that autistic people might have. So my research has focused on that part of the question of what is enabling in an environment in particular the psychology of non-autistic people towards autistic people. So for example if you go for a job interview say you're a fantastic candidate but your eye contact is a little bit weird. Maybe you're looking at someone too much or you're not looking at them enough or maybe you're looking at something else on the wall. This can make or break an entire job interview and yet it's got nothing to do with your calibre as a candidate but everything to do with our, um, with our expectations of what is appropriate interpersonal communication. These are things that autistic people might naturally find difficult because they may find it difficult to read and interpret implicit cues or facial expressions. Yet, um, because it's a difficulty uh, with processing, from the outside you might not know someone is autistic. So, it's, uh, so there's that whole challenge of um, constantly autistic people are having to navigate a world that is designed by uh, what is known as neurotypical um, people, so it's designed to be uh, a, a socially uh, optimised world and if you're not um, on that wavelength then actually very simple things can become quite disabling. The potential for relationships to break down is obviously not something specific to autistic people. I think you see that really interestingly on social media, uh, particularly like any kind of discussion on Twitter often descends into quite a toxic argument. And what's going on in the background is uh, this sort of what's known as an ad hominem um, argument where you're seeing the tweets in light of the credibility of the speaker and then it ends up being an attack on the speaker's character and not the discussion that's being had. And so there's this uh, assumption going on between uh, what is being said and whether this is some kind of window into the, the character of the person that's speaking. And that would actually have a transformative effect for people that find it difficult to communicate. One of the things Brett is doing is arguing that neurotypical people can actually learn a lot from autistic people about how to communicate so we can avoid relationships from breaking down. In a recent study, Brett observed how autistic people interacted and identified ways in which a relationship can be built through what Brett calls coordination, whether this be logical, coherence of subject matter, emotional, for example reciprocating laughter, and style, things like length of turns in a conversation. This is what he found. So there could be, for example, very poor uh, logical coordination uh, between participants, so they might not be reciprocating what each other are saying at all, they could be talking in parallel. Um, but this did not uh, necessarily predict that the conversation would terminate, whereas in a neurotypical interaction you would expect if neither party were reciprocating the other party, there would come a point where someone would be like, 
what's the point in interacting because you're not responding to anything I'm saying, I'm not responding to anything you're saying, um, and the interaction would terminate. Well, this wasn't the case with the um, autistic to autistic interactions. They were actually, um, what was going on was they were exploring their own private ways of making sense of the situation and they weren't particularly concerned if other people were reciprocating their own sort of verbalizations of what was going on. Um, and what was nice about that was having that freedom to just sort of individually explore the situation meant that when they did find a point of connect, they could build actually very good and rapid rapport in a really short space of time because they've created this kind of well of shared understanding and shared thoughts. So what I was left with was uh, this incredibly varied way of interacting, but a in very creative way of interacting. In this case, the autistic participants had a very um, generous assumption of common ground. Uh, and the other thing that autistic people uh, were able to do is to just not read so deeply into the causes of misalignment or non-reciprocated turns, uh, and to just have um, a lower demand for uh, tight social coordination. And that um, meant that it was possible for things to go awry, for uh, very strange things to happen in the interaction, or very uh, unexpected statements to be uh, spoken, but that didn't uh, have a residual effect, any kind of negative residual effect on the interaction. They were able to sort of move on very quickly and then uh, start something new. So uh, these two features are complementary and they are s uh, ways in which I try to characterise this alternative form of interacting that, is, that I've labelled neurodivergent intersubjectivity. So, can neurotypical people learn anything about relationship building from neurodivergent ways of interacting? Yes, absolutely. I've always felt that um, neurotypical people could learn a lot from neurodivergent forms of thinking, of uh, critically reflecting on the world and on interacting with each other. I think having a broader expectation of social norm creates this uh, space for interacting for people who are uh, not normative uh, in other ways. Number one is never assume you know what other people are thinking or feeling or experiencing, which we all do. Um, one of the ways in which we imagine other people's perspectives is by adjusting from our own perspective and just imagining our own selves in their bodies, but that doesn't really work if the other person has a unique sensory configuration or a, a unique way of processing the world. So definitely critically reflect on your own kind of implicit uh, assumptions and biases about uh, what other people are thinking and feeling. Um, definitely broadening uh, one's level of patience, uh, <laughs> that's essential, which can be difficult because again that's you know contextually determined. Um, I think uh, yeah just realizing that it's okay for things to uh, not run according to whatever uh, etiquette script or politeness script or um, you know socio-cultural script you might expect a conversation to unfold because if it doesn't follow that path things don't have to break down <laughs> I think uh, you, you actually realize uh, particularly when you're interacting with autistic people that it's just there are just very creative possibilities for building understanding uh, and it even though it feels instinctively scary perhaps to go off script in an interaction maybe it's because you feel your identity suddenly becomes more exposed um, and you don't have that kind of protection of uh, all those norms which usually guide interaction and make them more fluid 
Uh, but actually, it's not that scary and it's okay to just genuinely have these original interactions and um, develop something new. So I think just don't be so scared to try new forms of interacting and to just see where the interaction goes. It's clear that the modern world offers both challenges and opportunities for how to make and sustain relationships. The fluctuations and enhancements of the modern world will continue to change how we interact. Nevertheless, I'll end by sharing some advice from the musician Kanye West, whose lyrics from the song Big Brother highlight some timeless advice. If you admire someone, you should go ahead and tell them. People never get the flowers while they can still smell them. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by James Ritty, Ollie Johnson and Jess Winterstein. It was based in part on the following research. Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships by Brian D. Earp and Julian Savulescu. Neurodivergent Intersubjectivity, Distinctive Features of How Autistic People Create Shared Understanding by Brett Heisman and Alex Gillespie. And you can find out more about Poyla Keel's research at onlineafterdeath at weebly.com. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes as it makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Join us next time when we ask, how can we age better?